Well, hello, beautiful church. How are you? You guys look great. I'll have to tell you, and I hope I don't embarrass our pastor's wife, uh, Miss Diane, too much, but when I saw her tonight for the first time, I thought, you look radiant. I don't know why. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it is the spirit that is on you tonight or what, but you look absolutely beautiful. So I just had to, to throw that out there. <clears throat> and, you know, God is so, he's so good. And he's, he's not just, I, I don't even know another word except to say cool. I, I don't know, and I know that makes me uncool to even say that word now, but, uh, but he's just so cool in the way that he orchestrates things and the way that he moves and the way that he puts things together. And so uh, Pastor Zach, the things that he was saying just in his introduction and, and after praise and worship, it confirmed everything. He actually spoke specific words in those few minutes that I'm going to bring out to you tonight. So I say that to tell you that I know in my spirit, not because of me, but because of the Spirit of God, because of the way He operates, because of the way He moves, this is a word for you. And I know it's a word for you because it's a word for me, and I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't want to preach it, okay? So I didn't want to teach it. When Pastor Zach asked me to take over the service tonight or to teach the service, I, I, the way that I operate, the way that I do this, is God and I have a conversation about you all. And when I say that, the conversation normally goes like this. I start it, and I say, okay, here's what I'm going to preach. And he says, no, you're not. Okay, well, let's preach this. Let's teach this. No, you're not going to do that either. And so leading up to this weeks in advance, God was speaking this word to me, and it was just a simple, a simple word. And I'm going to bring it out in just a minute, but just a simple word. And I thought, ah, oh, we've heard that before. We, we hear that all the time. God, that is boring. That's, that's the conversation we had. I'm just going to be honest with you tonight. I thought, no, no, no. God, let's, let's do it this way. Why don't we talk about how you have to be broken to be whole? And he said, no, we're not going that way. And I'm like, but, but I mean, we could. You know, we, we could talk about this, and we could talk about this scripture. And he says, Amanda, I've been telling you to rest. And I'm like, but I don't want to. So instead of talking about rest... Why don't we talk about Matthew, and why don't we talk about how, you know, you're disqualified to be chosen? And he says, rest. Okay, God, we have a breakdown in communication here. And, of course, you know, his response is, it's you, and it's called rebellion. There's no reason to use that tone. I'm just saying that you should take my advice here. Because there are things that, as a teacher, as a minister, that you enjoy teaching over other things. <clears throat> And I don't like teaching things that I have to live up to, okay? I don't like teaching the things that I have to work through because I have to work through it before I bring it to you, and that makes it a little bit harder. So I prefer to teach those things that I fully have under control so that I don't have to work on anything. That's where we're at. That's how I like to do it. God has other plans completely. So I thought about you tonight, and I prayed for you, and I, and I prayed, you know, for this house, and, and finally I gave in like always. God always wins. Every argument, he always wins. And so I gave in, but I still had to have a little bit of um, reluctance there maybe. And so I said, well, if we're going to do this, I'm going to have three different titles. And he just said, oh, goodness. <laughs> so if you're like me, you're type A personality, you need a title. 
You get to choose from three. Okay, you ready? Feasting versus digging. Saying yes versus saying no. And yielding versus fighting. So you get to choose which one you like. And they'll all make sense here in, in just a minute. And so we're actually going to start off in the book of Revelation. And Sister Mindy's back there thinking, you did not give me that scripture at all. And I completely forgot. So we're going to Revelation chapter 4. Just to give you an idea of where this word came from or where this message come from uh, as far as in, in, my, in my process. So Revelation chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 2. And I read out of the Holman Christian Standard Version, so it may be a little bit different than what you're looking at. But it says, After this, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. And that translation means to ascend or to arise. And I will show you what may take place after this. In verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and a throne was set there in heaven, and one was seated on the throne. I want you to narrow in on verse 2 when it says, I was in the Spirit. The word in in that passage, in that particular text, actually comes from the Greek word that is translated from the Hebrew word that is used in compound structures to talk about fountains or to talk about springs. And you normally see it in the beginning of a proper noun for like a well, for example. And whenever you see it in the Greek or the Hebrew, it may be en instead of in, pronounced the same way um, as the word in the English. But it means... Something is stationary. It means that something is in a specified position. It's something that could be used as a landmark. Does, is anybody in the room directionally challenged? That's me. I'm not Magellan or Christopher Columbus. Do not use words like north, south, east, or west. Do I turn by sonic or do I go past roads? That's what I need. Okay? That's what I need. So in... The Old Testament, whenever they would use this word that we see in Revelation, they would say to, to denote that it could be a monument, so to speak. It would be something that would be stationary. It would be something that you could base all other directions off of because it would always be there. It also is connected to mean something was at rest. Something was at Rest, You see, and here is the point of the whole message tonight. I'm going to give it to you in the beginning, and you're going to hear it multiple times. You may have walked your way into what you have experienced this far, but you will have to be carried into what you're born for. You may have walked your way into what you have experienced this far, but you will be carried. You will have to be carried into what you are born for. We're going to enter in to more of a, of a teaching versus a preaching tonight. And so we're going to have a little bit of fun. We're going to look at a couple different uh, passages or a couple different uh, ways to kind of pray over or to bring in this concept of rest. But if, if you're like me, you have to be reminded to rest. I'm someone who is always on the go. I am someone who I get bored, and so I think that my hands have to be busy. I'm always doing something. And my mom will even tell me, Amanda, you don't always have to be doing something. Yes, I do. I have to be reminded to rest. So I need people in my life that says, you need to rest. 
whenever I'm fighting off a bug or I'm fighting off a flu or something like that, I will say in my mind, I'm just going to keep going because if I pretend like it don't exist, it's not going to be there. And so I'm just going to push through and I'm going to push through. And the whole time, sometimes my body and even my spirit is saying, no, you need to rest so you can recover. You need to rest. I'm like, no, 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 we're going to push through. We're going to push through. So I need to be reminded to rest. You see, I'm the person that believes that you earn your way into the things you want. I am a type A personality. I like to-do list. I like checking things off. I strive for accomplishment. I'm just going to be honest with you. I am someone who, if I had, did not have accomplishment in my life, I'm not really for sure what type of person I would be. I would probably be frustrated. I'm someone who likes to see that things are completed, that things are done, and that they're done well. I'm the person that is always saying, get things in order. If there's something that you want to accomplish, make sure you're doing everything needed in order to produce it. I'm the person who says that if you put in the work, your work will be rewarded. That's me. I think that's why I'm an Old Testament girl. I'm an Old Testament girl because, you see, I like the verse, like in Daniel, for example, where it says, and Daniel distinguished himself. I like that. I can do that. I can present myself in a way to where I distinguish myself. Because I trust my abilities more than I trust yours. That's the truth. Don't shut me down. Don't pretend like you don't have these thoughts and you don't have these ideas. But I trust my ability before I trust yours. And what I have found is that I approach God's word that way. I approach God's word in that same way that I need to dig in order to get revelation. I need to dig deeper, and I need to dig deeper, and I need to seek, and I need to seek, and I need to strive. And although, yes, you do need to dig in his word, but there are also moments that you need to feast on his word. And you see, whenever you dig, it's more about my ability. It's more about what I want to do, more about how I want to understand. But yet when I feast on the word, I lean up against the table, and I open up my hands, and I say, give me whatever you want. And always what he gives me over what I think I need is always better. I have to be reminded to rest. And so I was someone who I always thought that if you didn't read your Bible every single day, then, then what are you doing here, right? If you didn't read your Bible every morning or every evening, then, then can you even call yourself a Christian? And I have learned that, you see, doing that was more about me checking off a duty off a list. Doing that, I would sit down and I would read his word. And it wasn't about, God, what can you give me? It was more about, well, I just simply want to say that it's been done. And so what I would do is, is I would sit down to read his word and I would find myself even frustrated sometimes because I wasn't getting the revelation I want. And the whole time my spirit was saying, because it's not about the things that you seek, it's about who you seek. And you're not seeking God in any of this. You're seeking confirmation and you're seeking validation. You're seeking things simply to answer a question that you have already answered yourself. How many of you remember the magic eight ball? Do you remember that toy? You see, it was this big eight ball and... You would hold it in your hands, and, uh, and Luke's like, what are you talking about? Luke, just, just block me out for a minute. So, <laughs> but you had this big magic eight ball, and I wanted to find one, and I couldn't find one. And, and you would say things, you know, like when I was 15 years old, I would, sh I would look at it, and I would think, magic eight ball, am I going to marry Leonardo DiCaprio? And I would shake it, and it would say, it's highly unlikely. And so then you know what I would do? This thing's got to be broken. Let's try again. Magic 8-Ball, will I marry Leonardo DiCaprio? And I would shake it, and it would say, mm, probably not. 
And then I'd shake it again until I finally got the answer that said, absolutely, yes. I want to tell you the magic eight ball lied. Leonardo DiCaprio and I are not married. But here's what we do. We take this word and we, we have a conversation with God or we have a situation that we're facing and, and we take this word and, and, and maybe it's somebody who's attacked you. Maybe it's somebody that has offended you and you're trying to figure out how to respond to that situation, how to respond to that person. And I hold up his word and I shake it and I, I open it up and I shut my eyes and I point and it says forgiveness. No, mm -mm, no, that was wrong. Let's go again. We shake it and we open it up and we point and it says Watch your tongue. No, that's not what we're looking for. And we shake it again, and we shake it again, and we hold it up. And then all of a sudden, I see the scripture that says, And the violent taketh by force. I'm like, there it is. That's what I was looking for. You see, what I was doing is I wasn't approaching his word from a restful position. I wasn't approaching his word from a position or a posture of, God, what can you give me? What can you bring me? What I was doing is I was approaching his word simply because I wanted him to validate the decision that I have already made. And I was wanting to strive. I was wanting to dig. I was wanting to, to learn. And if I seek those things, I will always have understanding. But yet God is saying, stop seeking understanding and start seeking me. You see, that's one of the differences in a Jewish culture and a Midwestern culture is that we seek, we believe before we understand. No, I'm sorry, let me back up. We understand before we believe. If I don't understand it, then how can I believe it? You see, in the Mideastern culture, they flip it around. They believe and then comes understanding. We have a lot of things that we do backwards. We have a lot of things that we approach out of order. And so I shake that magic eight ball, and there's these questions that I have, and there's this direction that I need, and I dig for this answer, but I'm really not digging for an answer. I'm digging for my answer. I still have this work mentality, and God is saying, rest in me, because I've called and I've asked you to feast on my word. I've asked you to feast on my word. You see, I don't know about you, but when I sit down to study my word, I'm normally at a desk, and I've got three colors of highlighters because they all mean something. I've got a couple different ink pens. I've got my notebook. I've got Google pulled up if I need a Greek translation. I've got all of these things, and I sit there, and I'm ready to study. But you want to know how he calls us to approach him? He calls us to just lean into the table. I want you to picture when, and I know that you have seen this in movies, I know you've seen these representations, but there would be this very low table and surrounding that table would be pillows and they would literally be propping themselves up on that pillow. That's what God is asking us to do when he says, feast on my word. Stop trying to dig, stop trying to strive, but reach out to him from a position of rest. Because you see, in order for us to enter into the degree of presence that he has spoken over this house, that he has spoken over us as individuals, you are going to have to be in a posture of rest. You have walked your way into what you've experienced so far, but you will have to be carried into what you were born for. You see, when we want the word of God, the spoken and the written word, we don't have to dig, but we lean towards the table. You'll never reach the posture of rest if what you seek has higher value than who you seek. Go to the book of John with me tonight. John chapter 12, verse 1 through 7. As I was looking at this particular passage, I thought, somebody's preached this recently. 
who, who was it? Where did I hear this story? And I'm pretty sure it was Pastor Zach on Sunday morning. <laughs> I think he referenced it that week. I'm like, why did I just hear this? Um, but John chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, and this is what we get. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was. The one Jesus had raised from the dead, so they gave a dinner for him there. And Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was the one reclining at the table. And then Mary took a pound of fragrant oil, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. The one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he didn't say this because he cared about the people, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was in it. And Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. You see, there are two different people here and there are two different responses. And the reality is you are one of them. You are either the one anointing Jesus' feet or you are Judas saying, why are they doing that? You fall into one of the categories. And so there's two people, there's two responses. One of them has entered into a period of what we would call excess worship. The other one has entered into offense. So one has entered into excess worship and the other has entered into offense. And when Mary breaks the box, Judas moves into the offense because he can measure the value of the gift, but he does not value the recipient. And the recipient is Jesus. You see, he can see the value of the gift, but he cannot see the value of Jesus. And so Judas declares that this worship is offensive because he is looking at what he is being given compared to, what, compared to who it is being given to. Judas says the money could have been better used. Jesus is in front of him. The oil is being poured out onto the Son of God. And Judas says, I can find better use for that oil. I don't know any better use for that oil. I don't know any better use for that oil. And so he says the money could have been better used, not because he loved people, but because he loved money. That was it. He wasn't concerned about the poor. He was concerned about his own pocketbook. He essentially said, Jesus is not worth the cost. And Judas is watching the box and he's watching the perfume spill and he's watching Mary kiss the feet of Jesus. And nowhere in this exchange does Judas say, maybe her response is more appropriate than mine. He never says that. So I want to ask you tonight, what has more value, the things you seek or the one you seek? You see, let's look at it a different way. Nestled in the Old Testament, we have the book of Esther. And Esther is known for saving the Jewish nation, but her story does not start there. You see, as I was going through this passage, as I was opening up the book of Esther, I thought, you know, you know, because, of course, I, so we've already established, I think I know better. I thought, God, why didn't we actually start the story with Esther? Shouldn't we have started the book of Esther with Esther? And again, he just shakes his head at me and he says, no, we shouldn't have. I did it the right way, Amanda. And so we have nestled in the Old Testament, the book of Esther, but it didn't start with Esther. Instead, the book of Esther starts with someone making a choice that was not Esther's. Did you catch that? Someone else makes a choice that is not Esther's. And so for 180 days, the king has a banquet. 
He invites his officials, the military and the nobles. He invites the elite. And at the end of the 180 days, the king follows that banquet up with another banquet. But this time, in the second banquet, he didn't invite the royals. He didn't invite the officials and the military, but he invites everyone. Because the determining factor of whether or not everybody gets to enjoy the banquet is how the leaders handled the presence of God. So let me speak to the leaders in the house for just a minute. If your approach to God is from a position of chaos and not rest, this house will be in chaos. Your approach needs to be in rest. You see, if, you, if most of you know, you know what I do as a, as a career, you know, I'm in higher education and, and I'm responsible for all of the high schools that are in the Three Rivers District. And so I, I have, you know, 50 plus counselors. I have 50 plus superintendents, 50 plus principals. So you could imagine how chaotic that is. Okay. Some of them are a lot more chaotic than others. I will not say who it is because some of them may be watching, but so you can imagine how chaotic that is. And so there's a time of the year that I go out and I visit all of these high schools. We worked with them all throughout the, you know, all throughout the semesters. And so normally in the spring, I go out and I actually physically visit them and we have these conversations. And there was a particular day where I had lumped three or four high schools together and, and it was a pretty day. And I thought, oh, well, we'll just take some country drives today and, you know, listen to music and get paid to do it. I get paid to talk to people and drive a lot of times. And I walked into my first high school. And as I walked into my first high school, I said, hey, I said, how's everything going? And she, my counselor said, it's terrible. She said, we just had the biggest violent threat we've ever had this year. She said, the weapon actually made its way into the building. She said, we had to suspend five students. She said, it's been an absolute nightmare. And I thought, bless your heart. And we had, you know, just a conversation about the, you know, just the, the environment and the nature of, of education right now. And so we finished what we need to talk about, and I went to the next high school. And I walked into the next high school, and I said, hey, I said, how are you doing? And the counselor said, have you heard? Have I heard what? And he proceeded to tell me that they just found out that one of their long-term teachers has been molesting children for 15 years. And I thought, okay, God, I'm not going to any more high schools today. This is a heavy day. And I went to my last high school. Same conversation. Hey, how are you? How are things going? And the counselor said, Amanda, we had a student. We had a teacher who committed suicide. And our students are destroyed. And I went out to my car. And I thought, God, our schools are in a state of unrest. That's the only way, that's the only word that I know to, to define it. They are in a state of unrest. What can we do? How do we fix this? And he said, Amanda, what's in your hand? And I said, well, I'm sitting in my car. I don't have anything in my hand, my literal mind. And he says, what's in your hand? And you see, I carry this cloth with me. It's a, a cloth that... I'm not a sentimental person, Pastor Zach. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you, and people normally give me gifts, and, and I, I, I don't keep them a lot of times. <laughs> I'm terrible. But you see, Pastor Val gave me this cloth months ago, and he walked up here before he handed it to me because I watched him, and he put anointing oil on it. And you can see the, the oil, how the oil has soaked the, the fibers. And he said, Amanda, I want you to carry this with you everywhere you go. And so I put it in my purse. And I've never taken it out. I've always had it. 
Because you see, every time I go into these high schools, guess what I carry in with me? I carry in my purse or carry in some kind of bag. And God whispered again. He said, what's in your hand? And I pulled open the pocket of my purse and I pulled out this cloth that is a representative of anointing. And he says, you are the fix. The anointing that lives in you, the anointing that lives in our godly teachers, in our righteous janitors, in everyone, the anointing that lives in you, you are the answer to the unrest. You are the answer to the chaos. You see, we have to approach those things that are in a constant state of chaos from a position of unrest. You see, I could have walked in those high schools and I could have said, well, I have no idea how you can fix it. But you know what I did? I encouraged and I poured in. And there were moments that I said, we can call this into order what has been out of order. And so every time from that point on that I would walk into this high school or a high school, I would take, walk down the hall and I would have this anointing cloth, this anointed cloth in my purse. And I would just begin to say, if there is anything out of order in these halls, they now must come in order. We have that authority. We have that authority. But understand that I can't do that and you can't do that if you are constantly shaking your head and wringing your hands and saying, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to take place. It's time for us to rise up and say, I'm on the grounds now. Everything falls in line because I know who lives in me. I know who operates in me. Whenever we walk into this sanctuary, we are in the midst of a moving God. And so all things that are out of order must come in subjection to the one who created all order. But you have to be in a posture of rest in order to receive that. And so again, I say to you that you have to come in here in a position of rest or in a posture of rest. And so what we have here is that you have this secondary feast that the king has made. And the king, the king's wife has her own feast. See, we haven't even been introduced to Esther yet. And the king's wife, Vashti, has her own feast going on. And so what we get is we get this picture of a church having a feast without the presence of the king. You see, you have one feast over here that's filled with the leaders and filled with everyone else. And then you have this other group of people here who don't even want to be in the king's presence. They're satisfied being in each other's presence. You see, so if you go to Esther chapter 4 with me tonight, and if you look at verse 10 and verse 11, what you find is that the king calls for Vashti to step out of her inferior feast into his superior feast, and she rejects it. But you see, there's something you've got to catch. In verse 10, it tells us, and I'm not going to read all those names that you see in front of you, but it tells us that the king gives a command to the seven eunuchs that have served him. And as I come across that passage, I thought, was the queen that hateful that she needed seven men to bring her to the banquet? Were they that afraid of her that they needed seven men to bring her to the banquet? But then I read verse 11. And it says, bring Queen Vashti before me with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. He didn't want her to walk into the banquet. He wanted her to be carried into the banquet. The culture of this day, Vashti would have had her crown on. 
there would have been a, a platform that she would have laid on and those seven eunuchs would have lifted her up and they would have carried her into that banquet. They would have carried her into the presence of the king because what you have walked your way into and what you have experienced this far, but you will have to be carried into what you are born for. You see, your father, your king, wants to carry you into his presence. He wants to put a crown on your head to show that you are beautiful and there are some of us that are rejecting it. We are rejecting it. You may have walked your way into what you've experienced so far, but you will have to be carried into what you were born for. You see, she refused to be carried out of her inferior feast, and she loses her authority in the kingdom. And she also loses two more things. Number one, she loses her inheritance. And number two, she is never allowed to approach the king again. And interesting enough, the women at Vashti's banquet were invited to the king's banquet too. But they were simply satisfied being with each other. They rejected his invitation as well. And what we see in our sanctuaries is we see these cliques, we see these divided groups of people in our worship and our response is based on somebody else's response. Maybe it's the person next to you. And we term this corporate worship to make it sound holy. And I know what corporate worship is. I know that it has its place. But my private worship determines my response corporately, not who is beside me, not who I am comfortable with at that time. I'm sorry sorry to tell you, but if the king calls my name, I'm leaving you behind. Okay? If the king calls me into something and you're unwilling to go, get out of my way. I'm going ahead. I'm moving forward. If you want to stay where you are, then stay where you are. If you want to stay bound and you're not willing to come with me, I'm sorry, but I'm going. I'm running as fast as I can, and it may not be very fast, but I'm still running. I'm going to wherever he has called me, and I'm sorry. I know that sounds harsh. Actually, I'm not sorry. But if that means leaving you behind, I'm leaving you behind. That's it. We have got to stop. And I love my church family. Understand me tonight. I love every single one of you. I love you. I love coming in here early and talking with you and chatting with you and having conversations with you and getting to know you and wrapping my arms around you. But I don't come here for you. I don't come here for you. I come here for the presence of God. I come here to be used by God. And there are moments that God gives me a word and there are situations where God uses me to pour into you. But if you don't come, I'm still coming. If you don't respond, I'm still going to respond. If you don't worship, I'm still going to worship. I cannot sing a lick. Just ask all of those around me. But I'm still going to sing. Because I'm not singing for you. I'm not singing for you. I'm singing for a king. Your chaos is not going to cause me to go into chaos. I am going to be in a position of rest because I am called to be in a position of rest. And so what we have here is we have, again, these sanctuaries that are so divided that we're waiting on someone else to respond to him when God is saying, but it's your time. I have called you out. I want to carry you into a certain degree of presence that you have never experienced before. Stop looking to your left. Stop looking to your right and run to me because I have called you out and I have called you beautiful. You may have walked your way into what you have experienced this far, but you will have to be carried into what you are born for. <clears throat> the only way to be carried is to yield. I don't know if you caught it, but in Pastor Zach's prayer, he said the word yield. The only way to be carried is to yield. And the definition of the word yield is to give way to demands and pressure. 
give ways to demands and pressures. You see, some of us are fighting battles that you were never intended to be in. Some of you are getting involved in conversations that you were never intended to get involved in. And you are finding yourself being swept away when God is saying, I told you to yield. We don't view this as being heroic. We don't look at the person who yields. We don't look at the person who submits as being heroic. But instead, we celebrate the powerful. We don't celebrate the humble. We don't celebrate the whisper. We celebrate the sword. We don't celebrate the one who resists. We celebrate the one with physical strength. We celebrate David and Saul and Samson. And we look at Esther and we say, she must have been pretty. She saved a nation simply by saying yes to the presence of the king and all we could talk about is the beauty regiment she had to go through during the day but yet we will hold up Samson because he had physical strength you see no one ever calls Esther a warrior nobody ever refers to her in that way but we will celebrate feats of great strength and mighty acts of valor whenever they involve hand-to-hand combat. We celebrate scars. We celebrate those moments, those war stories. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but what I'm saying is that I think that we glorify hand-to-hand combat way too much whenever it comes to the spiritual, when God is saying, I could have fought that battle for you and you wouldn't have to touch anybody. But because you think that you have to earn, you think that you have to strive, you stepped into a place that I said was rest, and you wielded a sword, and I could have been your savior. You see, this morning... I shared over my thoughts of coffee, or I shared my thoughts over coffee posts, and I talked about I talked about scars, and I shared one of those stories in great detail with you the last time I spoke when I put my hand through the uh, through the window and I had to have seventy nine stitches. But I've also got this scar right here underneath my chin where I was playing street hockey and I fell and I had to have pieces of asphalt moved from my 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 chin. I have this jagged scar on my hand where I was climbing a cliff on the river to jump off of it. I was, crazy. But I was climbing the cliff and I slipped and I I, I cut my hand coming down. I just still jumped off the cliff. It was great. But I have that. I have this scar on the top of my foot where I was running in the kitchen. I don't know why. And I dropped a glass on my foot and it cut my foot open. You see, every scar has a story. And we know those stories and we can tell those stories. And some of us are holding on to those those hand-to-hand battle moments. And we're holding on to that combat. And we're, we're glorifying those moments. But yet the times whenever the Spirit comes in, simply because you yielded to Him, we never talk about I want to hear more stories about the one who just said yes to his presence and God used them to save a nation. I want to hear more stories about a generation that never had to fight battles that you and I are fighting now. They just walked into the throne room and understand who they were and what they were called to do. They didn't face addiction. They didn't face pornography. They didn't didn't face uh, homosexuality. They didn't go through any of that. They just said yes to the presence of God from the beginning. That's the generation that I want to see. That's the generation that I want to build up. And so we celebrate these scars. Can we celebrate Esther when her strength was simply a proximity to the king? And I say simply in a little bit of a sarcastic way because for some reason we think it's easier to fight a physical battle than to simply say yes to him. You see, and I don't know about you, I've done both. So how many... Of the great warriors throughout history, can we say single-handedly stop the Holocaust? We can with Esther. 
The manifestation of Samson's strength was physical. Esther didn't have a physical strength. Interesting, both of their strengths, Esther's and Samson's, were generated by a vow. Samson had a no vow. Esther had a yes vow. One attempts to say no to the things of the world while the other yields and says yes to the king. At first glance, without knowing the end of the story, Samson's initial resume is far more impressive than Esther's. He takes a jawbone of a donkey and he slays a thousand Philistines. We could tell story and story after this. I was just reading last night or on Monday night how he saw a woman that he wanted and he simply said, go get her and brought her to him. And I thought, Samson? But then he gave her away because she caused chaos. And I thought, see what you did? So we have Samson here who slays a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey in direct contradiction to the vow that God gave him. Because the vow that God gave him was do not touch any dead thing. If he has a jawbone of a donkey in his hand, that is a dead thing. And we will celebrate him even though his victory was out of line with the covenant. We celebrate tremendous compromise as long as it can be attached to growth. We live in a church culture that says as long as a thousand enemies are falling, we don't care what the personal life looks like. All we care is that we're seeing victory. We celebrate things that contradict the vow. Samson takes firebrands and ties them to the tails of foxes and sends the foxes through the camps of his enemies. He takes up the gates of the city of Gaza on his shoulders and he carries the gates away. Look at the might. Look at the valor. But look at the end result. The end of Samson's legacy is slaying 3,000 Philistines at his own death. The end of Esther's legacy is the salvation of over half a million Jews. And we will celebrate Samson more than we celebrate Esther because Esther just was pretty. Esther reproduces in intimacy what Samson could not in physical strength. You see, the first phases of Esther's resume looks like this. She's an orphan girl. She's captive in a foreign land. She's inheriting a spiritual father. But Esther ends up having a son named Darius II who ends up rebuilding the temple. Samson's legacy dies with no vision and the sight of his vow removed. And we talk about how Samson stops the violence of thousands, how he has quenched the sword, how he has stopped the mouth of lions, and he is awesome. But Esther must have been pretty. All the while, we miss Esther. She single-handedly stopped the Holocaust, not because of her ability to fight, but because she said yes to the king. You may have walked your way into what you've experienced this far, but you will have to be carried into what you are born for. You see, again, I've done the sword thing. I've done the proximity thing, and I have to tell you, sometimes the sword is a lot easier. Sometimes it's easier to bulldog my way into a situation and take things into my own hands rather than saying, God, I believe in you and I trust you and laying down at his feet because you see, I don't understand his ways. He asked me to do things that seem to contradict the very thing that I want to happen. There was this moment several years ago that I, uh, there, was, there was this individual in my life and they just they had lied on me. And betrayed me, and I had helped them. 
I had poured into them. I had been a stable, you know, just fixture for them and to help them navigate things. And they just made up stories. And I was sitting at home and a lady from the the church I attended at that time, she sent me a text and she said, this individual uh, needs help. A bunch of us are going to go to her home and we're going we're gonna to bless her. She has just moved out into a different home for unexpected reasons. And so we're going to bless her. And I said, you're going to bless her. That's what in my mind. I'm going to stay home. And I walked into my bedroom because I was going to do something different to distract myself. And God said, Amanda. And I was like, no. You didn't have to get the words out. I said, do you know what she has done to me? Do you know what she has done to me? Did you hear? I know that you saw. And I was like, don't ask me. Don't ask me to do this. Don't ask me to go help her. Don't ask me to go pour into her. Don't ask me to do that because, God, it's not fair. And I remember I sat down on the edge of my bed and I had tears streaming down my face. And he said, if you don't go, you become like them. He said, but if you do go, you become like me. And I walked into that home, and I wish I could tell you that I had the most glorious spirit about me when I walked in. But I walked in, and I put my toaster, the cheapest toaster I could find on the the counter. And I walked into the corner, and I said, it's good to see you. And I stood there for a couple of minutes. And then my spirit quickened and said, wrap your arms around her. Wrap your arms around her, because what is in you is what she needs. What is in you is what she needs. You see, I like the sword sometimes better than the spirit. I like to cut those who have cut me. And we all know that that's not allowed. (laughs) But that doesn't mean I still can't think it, right? But sometimes I enjoy the sword more than just simply saying yes because his ways don't make any sense to me. His ways don't make any sense to me. But Samson's vow is based on his ability to resist. Esther's vow is based on her ability to yield. Samson kills 3,000 of his enemies, and we may say, what a mighty warrior. Esther saves half a million of God's children. She was powerful. She was powerful, and she was scary, and she was crazy brave. Because she said yes to the king. Look at Esther chapter 4 verse 16. It says, go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. If this drawing near to the king kills me, okay. But my legacy will be that a nation is saved because I approached him even when I didn't feel invited. I approached him. No longer do we have to feel like that we, no longer do we have to feel it to approach him. But some of us are surviving and we're tired. Aren't you tired of fighting? 
Aren't you tired of fighting in the hand-to-hand combat? Aren't you tired of just simply surviving? Aren't you tired of struggling to say no instead of yielding to his presence? Your worship will be connected to the things you yielded to, not the things you resist. I will say again, you may have walked your way into what you have experienced this far, but you will have to be carried into what you are born for. You have got to reach out to the king from a position of rest and not a position of chaos. I'm going to tell you one more quick story as I'm coming to a close. I have a a cousin of mine, and you may have heard this story before, uh, but I'm going to tell it again (laughs) because I can't remember if I've told it to you. But I have a cousin of mine that we are, we are very close, and, and she's on my dad's side of the family, and, um, and she's really the only one that I'm extremely close to, but she is my best friend. She is the one who has seen every single part of me, and, um, and her, name is, her name is Rhonda, and she has seen me in my best and seen me in my worst and still chooses to love me. It's the kind, of, the kind of friendship, the kind of relationship that she can tell what is going on simply by the sound of my voice. That's how well we know each other. And she has a cabin that sets between Wapapella Lake and the St. Francis River. And so I go over there quite a bit on the weekends and just spend time with her. Her husband works nights, so we just have movie nights and, and goof around and all of those things. And then we go shopping during the day, although there's not a whole lot of shopping in Wapapella or Greenville, Missouri, but we make do. <clears throat> we will find something to buy, even if it's at the dollar store. And so, you know, we, we go over, or I go over there quite a bit. And um, one day, it was a beautiful day. It definitely wasn't today because it was a million degrees. But it was last summer, and it was, it was a beautiful day. And uh, we just got on the side-by-side, and there's a ton of roads. I mean, she is in the middle of nowhere, okay? It's her, her property. You actually have to take a Corps of Engineer road to get to her place. And it's just in the middle of nowhere. And so we jumped on the side-by-side, and... I can always talk her into things. Maybe that's why we're friends. But I can always talk her in and persuade her to do things that she doesn't even want to do. Okay? And so this day, she was telling me about um, this abandoned, like, cabin out in the middle of nowhere. And it was like this abandoned resort. And I'm like, let's go to it. And she's like, why? I don't know. We're bored. We have nothing to do. Let's go to it. Nobody's going to see us. Nobody's going to know that we're going out there. And she's like, Amanda, these people will shoot you. And I'm like, oh, we're fine. Let's go. We're good. We're good. So we jump on the side-by-side, and we go to this abandoned boat dock. It was really kind of creepy. I don't even know why we went there, but I just wanted to go. And so I step out of the, the side-by-side, and she's with me. And, um, and I'm walking on this, you know, this dock, and we're looking at things. And, and all of a sudden, I hear something. And I'm like, what is that noise? And it dawns on me. It's a rattlesnake. And I can't see it. I don't know where it's at, Pastor. I can't see it. I can hear it, but I can't see it. And my cousin is deathly afraid of snakes. I'm not. If a bird flies in here, I'm going to scream like a little girl. But I'm not afraid of a snake. I don't know how. I don't know what happened. Or a moth. If a moth lands on me, I'm passing out. But I will pick up a snake. And so I know that she is deathly afraid. And I'm thinking, I have to make sure that I'm calm. Because if I'm not calm, she's going to feed off of my energy. And I was pretty calm. We, I probably have issues that need to be addressed, but I don't know. And so I keep hearing the snake, and I turn around, and I said, Rhonda, I need you to stop. I said, because there's a rattlesnake, and we are close enough that it is identifying itself to us, but I can't see it. So we need to figure out where it's at so we can walk away from it. And all of a sudden, I see it over here out of the corner of my eye, and it's just on the rocks, and it's blending in. And it was close enough that if it wanted to strike, it could have, it could have struck because the, it, it was 
the biggest snake I think I have ever seen. And I said, okay, we just need to back away. And she's like, it's your fault because you wanted to come here. <laughs> and so we back away. And then I realized, you know, we probably need some kind of weapon with us whenever we're going out in the middle of nowhere and we didn't have anything. And so uh, we back away. We get back on the side by side and we're, you know, we're leaving and things like that. And, um, and she is of a different faith than I am. And she does not, uh, she believes in the Holy Spirit, but there's some restrictions there. And I looked over at her and I said, I'm going to tell you, I was kind of hoping that if it bit one of us, it bit you. Because I know I could heal you. I don't know if you could heal me. <laughs> she looks at me and I said, I'm just kidding. I'm like, God, I'm not. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I know that I can, <laughs> I know that I could heal her. But I tell you that just kind of, and I know that's a funny anecdotal story. But the thing is, if I would have panicked, she would have panicked. If I would have created chaos, she would have been in chaos. And you see, because of the calmness, because of the rest we brought into a dangerous situation, we were able to back out of that situation. You see, again, there are things that God wants to bring you into, but you will not receive them unless you are in a posture of rest. So stand to your feet with me tonight. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Just bow your head with me for a minute. Father, I love you. I honor you and I praise you because you are worthy. But God, I know that you are a God of rest. You are a God of peace. You are a God that can take something that is completely out of order and put it back into order. You are the God who can calm the winds, Lord. You are the God who can calm the storms. And Lord, I know that there are probably storms in this room tonight. I know that there are areas of our lives that may be in unrest. But Father, this minute of this day, of this hour, we call those things that are in unrest into rest. Father, we come against chaos. We come against the storms. We come against the wind. And we simply say peace and be at rest. So, Father, I just pray a spirit of rest falls over your people. I pray a spirit of rest falls into this sanctuary, Lord. That, Father, it doesn't end whenever we close the doors, but it becomes something that is stationary. It becomes something that is always here, Lord. That, Father, that we enter your presence from a position of rest. That we allow you to carry us into the things that we are born for. That we do not reject your presence because we are simply satisfied where we are. But we say, I want more. And if that means I have to stand still, if that means I have to yield myself, if that means I have to submit, then, Father, that is the spirit I bring tonight, Lord. Father, I thank you and I worship you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.